Welcome to the first episode of the DNA Papers, a podcast series in which we introduce and contextualize the seminal papers through which we found out about the molecule that we call DNA and its role in life and heredity. I am Nirja Sankaran, historian of science and medicine, who will be coordinating and moderating the series. We kick off the series with a paper titled Die Chemische Zusammensetzung der Eiterzellen, which translated from the original German reads as On the Chemical Composition of Pus Cells. Now, this is a very nondescript title, a point we'll be returning to later in the conversation. The story of this paper begins much like a fairy tale, actually. Once upon a time, in 1869 to be exact, in a castle. The castle is in Tübingen in Germany, where the hero of our story, a young Swiss student, Friedrich Miescher, like Cinderella, was relegated to working in the kitchens. The resemblance ends there because Miescher was not being treated as a scullery maid by any means. He was in the kitchens because this space had been converted to biological and chemical laboratories when the University of Tübingen had bought the castle for its use sometime in the early 19th century. Miescher had come to Tübingen specifically to work with the head of the labs that were housed in the former kitchen and laundry rooms of the castle. His head of lab was the physiological chemist Felix Hopzeiler, well known by then for his work on the chemistry of hemoglobin. Miescher's primary interest in coming to Tübingen to work with Hopzeiler had been to study the composition of cells because he believed, like many other people at the time, that the secret of life itself lay in learning about the functions of cells, which were widely regarded as the fundamental units of life. It was in the course of the studies of cells and their chemistry that Miescher discovered the hitherto unknown substance which he called nuclein because it was located in the nucleus, exclusively in the nucleus, it seemed to him. Nowadays, we call that substance deoxyribonucleic acid or DNA. Coincidentally, DNA has been dubbed as the molecule that holds the secret of life itself, which goes back full circle in some ways to what Miescher was looking for. The paper today on the chemical composition of pus cells is his first published p- report on his work and discovery. Now, the paper was very nearly not published at all, but that story is part of what our guests here are to talk about. So, without further ado, I shall turn to introducing them. All of them have encountered and studied Miescher's work in different contexts as scientists, as historians, as philosophers. Some of them are legatees in the sense that they continue to work on DNA, and I'm really excited that they've agreed to spend the next hour or so giving us their insights and perspectives into Miescher and his discovery. Our guests are Ralph Dam, who studied biochemistry and neuroscience before moving from the bench to the scientific administration. He's currently Director of Scientific Management at the Institute for Molecular Biology at Mainz in Germany. Given this background, it might come as something of a surprise to historians of science that Ralph is responsible for what is probably the single largest sustained corpus of historical work on Miescher and his discovery. Most of what Ralph has published, however, appeared in scientific rather than history of science journals, which is why I was so persistent in pursuing him to invite him to join this conversation. Hello, Ralph, and thank you for being here. Hi, Neotan. It's great to be here. Our next speaker is Kirsten Hall, who, having obtained a PhD from the University of Leeds in the molecular biology of viruses, shifted his attention to history of science while a postdoctoral fellow. He hasn't looked back since. He's the author of a biography of William Asbury, a figure who will appear later in this series. He was also the primary translator of the first complete English language translation of today's paper, which was published just last year for the first time, and the co-author of the commentary that accompanies that paper. He brings multiple perspectives, therefore, 
in turn as a bench scientist and a historian to this conversation. Delighted to welcome you, Kirsten. Delighted to be here, Neroja. Thanks very much for the invitation to chip in. Our next speaker is Professor Emeritus Bill Summers from the History of Science and Medicine program at Yale, where he spent many years teaching a wildly diverse spectrum of classes, including the history of mathematics, Chinese medicine, history of sexuality, and, of course, most pertinently to this conversation, history of the life sciences. Like everybody else so far, he too came to history of science and medicine from science. What's more, even later in his career, having spent many years living a double life running a laboratory of molecular biology and biophysics. In the interest of full disclosure, I should probably also mention that I was his first and only PhD student in history of science, though he has supervised many PhDs in molecular biology. Hello, Bill. Hello. Thank you for uh, including me, bringing a perspective of uh, the early days. And finally, but not least, I would like to introduce Sophie Feigl, the most bona fide humanist in our group today. Though she too got her start in biochemistry and genetics, getting bachelor's and master's degrees in those subjects, she decided to diversify her interests to include history, philosophy of science, and also comparative literature before she got a PhD in the philosophy of science from the University of Vienna in 2020. Her presence in this conversation is particularly relevant because she is the author of a couple of recent historical papers considering the reception of Miescher's discovery and ideas about nuclein by geneticists in the late 19th, early 20th century, as well as by historians of genetics. Welcome, Sophie, to this conversation. Thank you for having me. So thank you all once again very much for being here. I would really like to ask a rather obvious question. Why does the story of DNA, the DNA molecule, begin with this paper? And I would like to hear from Sophie first. If DNA hadn't become such a central molecule in the second half of the 20th century, we also wouldn't think that it is important to determine who discovered it and when it was discovered. I think it is also only presentism that makes us say to or think that Misha discovered DNA because, as we already heard, he named the substance which he isolated nuclein. The second reason why it might be interesting to talk about this paper is when we tell others about the history of science, we like grand figures and their stories. And I think, as we shall see, Misha is just great material for such an account and it makes the history of science very colorful. And the last reason why we should consider this paper, I think, probably most affected by my own interest, is that I think the paper primes one of the key themes about the history of biology in the 20th century, namely the competition between biochemical and genetic approaches in molecular biology. As we already heard, Misha was a hard-nosed physiological chemist, what we would now coin presentistically a biochemist. And the disciplinary situatedness of his own paper explains quite a bit about why he is not a prominent figure until now. Following on from Sophie there, Marshall Nirenberg, who received the Nobel Prize for helping to crack uh, the genetic code. 1967, Nirenberg said, you know, when man becomes capable of instructing his own cells, he must refrain from doing so until he has sufficient wisdom to use this knowledge for the benefit of mankind. The reason I state this problem well in advance of the need to do so is because the decisions concerning the application of this knowledge ultimately must be made by society and only an informed society can make such decisions wisely. Um, I think in the past two years we've all witnessed firsthand the importance of Nirenberg's call for a society that's well informed about science and I think in order to have that you need a much more honest picture of how science actually works and proceeds and the place to start with that is a more honest account of its history and I think that's a great reason to kick off the story of DNA with this particular paper. Why should somebody who's not a molecular biologist also be interested in Misha and this paper? I think what's important about Misha and his paper is also, during his time there was a lot of debate uh, regarding his findings, and I think 
a way of educating society towards understanding better how science works. It's not only like showing them this paper and saying, well, that's how it was discovered, but show how, how it was negotiated. And I think this will make it more plastic to understand how science works. Wonderful. Um, Bill? I would give another take on the previous two, two comments from someone who's taught a lot of non-science students about science. And I would say that there seem to be three things that, that the general college students that I teach think about science. One, that there are eureka moments where discoveries are made. And it just springs out of the brain of a scientist like uh, Diana out of the brain of Zeus. The other is that science deals in truth and that scientists deal in facts and proof. And it's objective. And all these concepts are belied when you study history. We see fits and starts. And I think it was Helmholtz who, who said that he was describing the process of his discoveries of climbing up a mountain, beating through the underbrush, and only to get to the top and find that there was the royal road coming up the other side. And the notion of science proceeding in fits and starts and making mistakes and recorrecting them is, is a, and I think that this is something that history will actually, as you say, give the context of these discoveries of these things that we now black box and take as facts. And it's a long process. And it's not just this Eureka moment when all of a sudden everything is clear. And I think the expectations of the public, for example, for instant cures of diseases or for unchanging advice about how to wear a mask, we're seeing this, as Kirsten points out, in real time. And I think historical studies of case studies like this are, are particularly useful for science students also to be able to explain to others. Are there particular features of this paper that you find worth mentioning that stand out that you think you'd like for other people to know about, Ralph? There's really, I would say, three aspects of the paper that stand out to me in no particular order, just the way they come to mind. The first is how incredibly basic the equipment and the tools were which Misha used to uh, perform his initial experiments on DNA uh, in which he isolated, discovered it and characterized it. Um, just to give you a couple of examples, at the time, he didn't have a fridge. We're talking the winter of 1868, 1869. Um, no fridges in Tübingen Castle, obviously. Um, so what he had to do instead is open the windows to the bitter cold of the continental European winter and basically turn his whole lab into one fridge in which he then also had to work. But this is how he could preserve his samples. Another one is that he wanted to get rid of the proteins to... Um, show that DNA is something different from the proteins. And for that, he used a, an enzyme, a molecule called pepsin. Now, pepsin is a naturally occurring thing in all of our stomachs that breaks down protein in, proteins into their constituent parts that can then be further digested and taken up by the body. And to get this pepsin nowadays, um, you just order it from a chemicals company and you get it within a couple of days, typically. But Misha couldn't do that at the time. What he had to do is get pigs' stomachs and then rinse them and make a very crude isolate of pepsin himself. So just as, as two examples, the way he had to work to do the experiments he did. The second aspect then, and based on this, is the amount of information he gleaned about DNA with these very simple techniques and tools he had at his disposal, to me, is really astonishing. But he managed to find out, for example, that's an entirely new class of molecule, different from the lipids and the proteins and so on that were known at the time. That it's an acid, that it's a macromolecular acid, that it's um, located in the nucleus and so on. All very novel insights at the time when Misha was working. And the third aspect, which really is a bit of a sad aspect to me, is how incredibly bad Misha was at selling his fundamental discovery. As you Niraja already pointed out, the title of Misha's paper is not very revealing as to what can be found in the text. It says on the chemical composition of pus cells, but no one who's not desperately interested in the chemistry of pus will likely read that paper. So he makes a discovery of a fundamental nature, he knows it, and still he doesn't give a proper title to his paper. That to me is a communication failure of probably the highest order you can make. And the second thing about the paper is that also the key finding 
DNA or nucleon, as he called it, and what it means and what role it maybe plays, he places at the very end of his text instead of bringing it much earlier. So you have to be a very patient person and read through long descriptions, because the paper is 20 pages long. You have to read through long descriptions of sometimes admittedly not very exciting descriptions of what he did before you finally end up getting the getting to the grand finale where he shows you what he really has found. So that to me is the third striking aspect of Misha's paper and also possibly one of the reasons why he didn't get the attention in the past, um, which I believe he would have deserved. Kirsten. Yeah, Ralph, I've I've always got the sense that Misha's something of a tragic figure. Uh, I seem to remember reading in one of his letters he confessed to going to bed every night feeling rather like a schoolboy who's not done his homework. And I think it was one of his students once described him as being like a ship laden with treasure that's returning to port only to sink to the bottom of the sea just as it enters into the harbour. And so I was wondering whether, you know, despite all these amazing accomplishments and achievements that you've talked about there with, with limited resources, do you, do you think that's a fair assessment of him? Do you think he went to his deathbed with this burdened by this sense of things left undone and this great sort of leaden sense of uh, unfulfillment? Do you think that's fair? Unfortunately, very much so, Kirsten, yes. Um, Misha suffered from t tuberculosis during the last years of his life um, and couldn't do much work anymore. He was still fairly young when he had to retire to Davos in an effort to recover, which he didn't. Um, and he wrote a lot of letters to co former colleagues uh, and family, which are preserved in, in Hisa's biography of Misha. And in these, you get a very clear sense that he felt he had a lot more work to do and a lot more results to publish, ideas to collect and coalesce into papers, but never managed to do so. Some few data which he generated were published posthumously by former colleagues or students, but I think a large amount of data which Misha had accumulated, many ideas which he had had, theories which he developed, um, remain unpublished to this day and possibly were lost forever, to be honest. I don't know if unpublished records still exist, which could be looked at by historians of science today. But Misha very much had this feeling, as had others around him, to be honest, yes. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I think it's interesting to follow up on what Ralph was saying about the title and the sense that so many titles of papers at this time were modest in the sense they said on proteins or on carbon or something like this. Wanting to, I don't think, be, uh, be cagey, I think it was just a style. One of the things that I remember being struck by when the first edition of Jim Watson's book on the molecular biology of the gene came out was that all the titles of the chapters and so on were positive assertive statements, like RNA is the message, proteins catalyze these reactions. They were declarative statements, whereas papers before uh, about the 1960s seemed to be much more conservative, not making assertive statements, but making uh, descriptive statements, more or less. And I think that this is in that tradition. I remember reading and discussing with Barbara McClendack her paper on, on mobile genes, which ran 60 pages of impenetrable prose, no figures, no graphs, no diagrams, and nothing in the title that led you to believe that she'd discovered something worth a Nobel Prize. This was in the, in the tradition of maybe false modesty, but at least a, somehow of cultural tradition that was not unusual, I think, at the time. Could you specify some passages for our readers, maybe even read out a passage um, from the paper that you think exemplifies the way he's burying some of his important discoveries in his paper, the, the fact that some of those ideas were already there way back when in 1871, rather than found out whiggishly, uh, so to speak? Sure, yes. Um... I'm referring to page numbers now from the translation which you have published, um, Niraja and uh, Kirsten, so that people can read it in the English, in, in English language rather than German. I also read the English translation, not the German original. Well, one, one example um, where he really makes a strong statement based on his uh, characterization of the newly discovered substance, DNA, nuclein, as he called it, comes on page 35. So very near the end of the whole article. 
And uh, he says, you know, after his characterization, he comes to the conclusion that we have here an entity that is in a class of its own and does not resemble any currently known group in brackets of chemical substances of the cell. So basically here, like I said, a page or so before the article ends, he makes the point that he has discovered something entirely novel, something that hasn't been found by biochemists before and which he otherwise says is equal in importance to the protein, so the most important class of molecules known at the time. And also in um, really the penultimate paragraph of his article, he says that understanding the relationship between nuclear materials, so nuclein or DNA as we now know it, proteins and their metabolic products will gradually help lift the veil which still so completely obscures the internal processes of cell growth. So what he says with this is that he thinks, at least, um, very presciently so, that the molecule he has found will be the key to understanding how cells and organisms thereby work on a molecular basis. And that was an insight that was quite far-reaching at a time when scientists were only just beginning to understand what molecules there are in cells, and for the most part having no clue as to what they actually do inside the cell. Clearly, Misha couldn't have known how true his statements would turn out to be in the long run. He was well too far away from, from what we now know. But still, he had, rightly so, I think a very good feeling that he had found something really, truly important in biology and biochemistry. Uh, and that he was trying to express with this sentence, which, like I said, I would have thought it would have been good for him to bring that earlier in the article. I would like to request some of you to give our audience some broader background. Who was Misher? What was his intellectual milieu? How did he come to be interested in cells? Why was he in Tübingen? Ralph, as I mentioned before, you are the author of The Largest Corpus, of work on Misher, so may I ask you to kick this off? Sure. Give you a brief uh, recount of Misha's early life. Um, basically, Misha was born into a family of scientists. Both his father, but most notably maybe his uncle, Wilhelm Hees, were famous physicians and professors of anatomy or physiology at the University of Basel in Switzerland. And as such, Misha was exposed from a very early age to a variety of scientific concepts, facts, and, and ideas, hypotheses. Now, on the urging of his father, Misha initially studied medicine as well at the University of Basel, but then found it very difficult to practice as a doctor. Um, it's not entirely clear why, but one idea is that he had developed um, bad hearing from early on in his childhood from an infection he had, and therefore couldn't interact with people very well. And as a doctor, practicing doctor, not being able to interact with your patients is you know, not a good precondition to be successful. So instead, he decided to um, switch his career and become a research scientist. And primarily influenced by his uncle Hees, he tried to figure out, to understand what the chemical nature of life is. So how molecules make cells and thereby beings what they are. Now, this at the time was a very young discipline, if you even want to call it that. Very few laboratories for what then was called physiological chemistry, nowadays you would call it biochemistry, had been set up. And one of the first and biggest, most well-known, was the one run by, as you mentioned, Hopper Seiler in Tübingen, in the old castle of Tübingen. So that's where Misha decided to go, to pursue his interest in the chemical basis of life. So interestingly, and maybe this is also a testament to his character, he didn't go there straight away. He first took a semester off to study chemistry, also in Tübingen, before he was brave enough to move to Hoppesiler's lab and study the chemistry of life under his supervision. Um, like I said, Hoppesiler at the time was the leading figure in physiological chemistry, and it was, especially coming from Basel, which is not so far from Tübingen, a natural thing to go to him and want to study under him, and that's what Misha did. He then chose cells as his starting material, and not just any cell, but leukocytes, white blood cells, because he believed that these represent the most independent form of cell there is. It's not entirely clear why he thought so, but um, in my opinion, it is because 
white blood cells are not embedded in a tissue context, like, for example, muscle or skin cells are. They move or can move freely through the body. And therefore, Misha felt that these are the most independent and most individual cells there are in the body, and he wanted to study those. Fortunately for us in the history of genetics, he did not choose red blood cells, erythrocytes, because they don't contain a nucleus and hence very little DNA. So if he had chosen those, which are also not embedded in the tissue context, maybe DNA would have discovered significantly later than it has. But he chose leukocytes, uh, and to get them, he needed to find the material to get enough of them, because they're not very easy to purify, even today, in large enough numbers, which Misha needed for his analyses. And he turned to pus-soaked bandages. So he went to a local hospital in Tübingen, got bandages from people who had wounds that were infected and therefore produced a lot of pus. And from these, he, <laughs> in a not very savory experiment, extracted the leukocytes, which he then, you know, stripped down chemically to arrive at the molecules that constitute these cells. Thank you, Ralph. I'd like to shift tracks a little bit now, from Misher and his discovery to the reception of his work by others. Sophie, would you take the lead on this question, since you recently published some papers on this very topic? The reception of Misha has two parts. One is the reception by his contemporaries, and the other is the reception within the historiography of biology, which at the moment ends with us who are here and talking about Misha, of course. Spoiler alert, none of these receptions is really going well for him, but I think they are not going well for different aspects. So let's start with Misha's contemporaries. The only good news here is that he was quite well received amongst cytologists who applied his work on nuclein with microscopic techniques. Misha, however, wasn't very fond of this discipline. He was even annoyed about the guild of dyers who were working with his nuclein. So we should turn to other physiological chemists and what they thought about nucleins. As Ralph already mentioned, we need to start here again with Hoppe Seiler. So Hoppe Seiler was quite influential and some years before Misha, another student of his had published the discovery of a substance, protagon he called it, that no one else could isolate after replication. So Misha's discovery was eyed with suspicion. Actually, the same person who five years before attacked that other substance again attacked Misha's uh, nuclein. Some chemists regarded the presence of phosphorus in nuclein as an indication of contamination due to, fault, to a faulty extraction method. This debate did not only take place in Germany, but also in France and England. Particularly in England, it was adorned by nationalist undertones. It was somehow about German physiology versus English physiology. And now I'm citing British chemist Thomas Charles Kingsett and Henry Wilson Haig noted, we sh shall dismiss this subject with the remark that as regards these nuclein and protamine precipitates, they may not unfitly be classified together with certain human beings under one comprehensive heading, the great unwashed. So to many of Misha's colleagues, no convincing data was available to prove that nuclein was a genuine substance at all. To them, Misha was a contaminator. He he just didn't work cleanly enough. Now, if you are to view a discovery as a social achievement, and I'm quite inclined to do to look at discoveries as social achievements, it becomes increasingly hard to locate any discovery with Misha because his peers didn't quite agree that he really discovered anything. One last blow Misha witnessed during his lifetime, and really, really need to mention that because it's a real gem, was uh, Richard Altman's work on nuclein. Altman renamed nuclein nucleic acid. Through an improved extraction protocol, Altman could separate nuclein from all its protein content, but then made the following move. He coined the resulting substance nucleic acid, and nuclein now would be the compound of nucleic acid and proteins. Now, Misha was super pissed about that. Not only was his terminology turned on its head, Misha himself had reported in 1874 that nuclein is acidic, and he had also separated nuclein from its association with proteins, which he called protamines. He called the compound nuclein acidic protamine. In addition, Altman had borrowed the salmon sperm he did the experiment with from Misha, which makes it even more tragic. 
and Misha then wrote to his uncle, my salmon nucleon is, of course, identical with this nucleic acid, and mine is the purest of all. Now, this episode is important to understand Misha's receptions by historiographers of biology. It just became quite unclear what exactly Misha had discovered because it was Altman's terminology that stuck. Also, nucleon transformed into nucleic acid became more and more of interest for geneticists. Questions were about what did Misha say about the function of nucleon heredity? Why didn't he investigate that? They located it a failure of Misha not to connect nucleon with chromosomes. Chromosomes, however, were situated in a disciplinary context of cytology, and Misha didn't like cytology that much. Commentators then also described him as a hard-nosed chemist, a reductionist, not able to engage in biological type of thinking that he could have led him into the right directions. In other words, Misha wasn't a life scientist, and this didn't really fit with the persona uh, historiographers of biology were looking for in the 1950s, 60s, 70s. So he wasn't a contaminator anymore, as he was to his contemporaries, but somehow a confuser who didn't get things right, culminating actually, and I think that's very remarkable, in the claim that Misha thought nucleic acids are derived from proteins. So Bob Olby, one of the household historians of biology, even argues, Misha's effort was, however, unfortunate in that it encouraged others in persistent attempts to show that nucleic acids are derived from proteins. These researchers, in turn, fostered a false view on nucleic acid as compounds formed between proteins and phosphorus acids. So Misha confused everybody who came behind him. And further, Bobolby even argues, I went back to the year 1869 when Fritz Misha extracted a substance corresponding to what we now know as DNA and called it nuclein. Was his conception of nuclein anything like his successor Levine's conception of nucleic acid, or like that of the later nucleic acid chemists, Guyon, Chargaff, or Todd. No. Was Misha really the man who deliberately went in search of the chemical substances which determine our heredity? No. So his reception was pretty bad, both with historiographers of biology as well as his contemporaries. One last aspect I'd like to mention why he didn't really fit, uh, particularly with the historiographers of biology in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, was that Misha not only isolating nuclein but also reporting on the association of nuclein with protein wasn't of much interest in a time that was mainly obsessed with the coding capacities of DNA. And one might say again, presentistically, in a time where we are interested about the genome, right, what is around the DNA, this might again, of course, change. And I guess every historiography account that we are writing at present day about Misha will, of course, again be affected by the changing interests and aspects about genetics, molecular biology, and biology in total. Great. Thank you. Something else I wanted to bring up is the issue of translation. Now, when Misha originally wrote his paper in 1869, it was, very naturally, in German. It's only very recently, in 2020, more than 150 years later, that the paper has been translated into English in its entirety. The translation of scientific papers is certainly not an unknown activity in science. I mean, one of the most famous, perhaps, is the paper by Gregor Mendel, which has on the surface an equally nondescript title on the hybridization of pea plants, which was written just about a decade earlier than Misher's paper. That one, since the early 20th century, has been translated many times over. And in fact, Kirsten, who participated in the Misher translation, also worked on one of the most recent translations of Mendel's paper. But there are many other scientific papers. There's a cluster of papers on the discovery of the tobacco mosaic virus written in German and Dutch, for example, from the late 19th century. It's another example of papers that were already translated. Do you, any of you have insights as to why it took close to 150 years for a paper like this one to be translated? Ever since Bateson co-opted Mendel's paper into his battle, over what the future of genetics was going to look like. Bateson had that, that struggle with the biometricians represented by F.R. Weldon, who Greg Raddick's been, been writing about at the start of the 20th century. And, and ever since Bateson co-opted 
Mendel's work as ammunition in that fight. I think ever since then, Mendel's had much better PR than Misha. Mendel's had this whole carnival building up around him. So if you flick through any A-level biology textbook, you will see Mendel um, put up on this pedestal, you know, and lauded with all these accolades, founding father of modern genetics, the lone genius, man ahead of his time, the priest to Elbicke, you know the kind of stuff, right? Um, and th there's none of that around Misha. And I think that, that probably goes, like like Bill said there, it's to do with, it's as much to do with the publicity that, that Mendel had um, as to explaining why why it took until 2020 for a translation of, of Misha. And it's interesting as well, because actually, I, as you said, Nirja, I um, with Stefan Muller Villa, we embarked upon a new translation of Mendel about ten years ago with the kind support of the British Society of History and Science. The, you know, the feeling was the time had come to produce a new translation of Mendel's paper on pea plants, and that translation of that paper presented me with a real challenge. And it's interesting to make a comparison here with Misha, because I'm. I'm half German on my mother's side, and so she brought me up to speak the language from the word go, right? But, you know, just because you can read Spider-Man and Superman comics in German as a kid is no preparation for, you know, laying the foundations of sufficient linguistic ability to tackle a seminal scientific paper. But that was not the biggest challenge. The biggest challenge for me was my background as a molecular biologist, as a scientist. Because what that means is that my entire, up until the point that I came to history of science, my entire understanding of the history of science has been shaped by those, those very Whiggish accounts you get in textbooks. Um, if you remember your Thomas Kuhn, opening page of Structure Scientific Revolutions, Thomas Kuhn was, was warning that the worst place to learn the history of science is from a science textbook, because science textbooks got two aims, pedagogical and persuasive. So what you're going to get is a nice tailored account of a discovery with a view to teaching you about the science there. Now, that, that, is, that is what had shaped my thinking about Mendel. You know, from the word go, I had been brought up with this image of Mendel, lone genius, man ahead of his time, founding father of genetics. In other words, when I left the lab and I came to history of science, I was by default a Whig. I was looking at the world through very thick, Whiggish shaped spectacles, right? Um, that was my problem, right? So but because of my education in science, I had these Whiggish spectacles on. Those lenses sit very heavily on your head. It takes real effort to lift them off and try to come to Mendel with no presentist, no Whiggish preconceptions, what Robert Albee called uh, inf inflated Whiggish uh, preconceptions. In his classic 1979 paper, uh, Mendel no Mendelian, he really set the ball rolling on this, saying, look, I want to strip away inflated Whiggish preconceptions around Mendel, put him back in the context of his own time. We, we were talking about the importance of that earlier. Um, and that was that was the biggest challenge for me, more so than any linguistic challenge, was you know, every single sentence you come at in that paper, I've got to scrutinize it and then I've got to take a step back and I've got to think, to what extent am I trying to impose my 30 years worth of preconceptions about Mendel onto this? So when Mendel's talking about ele the Elementa and things like that, I've got to just take a breath, stop myself and say, well, hang on a minute. I know you want to pounce on it and say, oh, look, look, he's talking about genes, but we've got to try and come at this fresh. Now, with Misha, things were different. And I think the difference is this. Right from the word go, Mendel's paper has a very ambitious feel. So in his introduction, he states that he's exploring the question of hybridization in the hope that this might offer some insights into how new species form. So, you know, it's almost as if he's looking at the mechanism of evolution, which is about as big as it gets in biology, right? Uh, no disrespect to Misha, but I don't think Misha's paper has that same epic feel to it. I mean, we've already, like Ralph's already talked, you know, I mean, the title, you know, it's about puss. Um, for all that we recognise Misha's paper now as being a summit on the historical landscape of biology, when you actually sit down and work your way through it, for a lot of it, it does read like a rather glorified biochemical cookbook, albeit one of massive significance. Um, but there's an advantage to that. 
it actually makes translating it more easy because I don't, I don't think you have as much of a problem with the lurking spectre of Whiggishness as when you come to translating Mendel. So in a sense, uh, I think Misha was much easier to translate because of that. Thank you. Ralph, Sophie, Bill, any follow-up to that? Bill. Well, I, I would just uh, recite uh, Kuhn again and uh, point out that uh, this business of translatability has a lot to do with uh, your your uh, set of assumptions, your paradigms. And uh, uh, I remember teaching uh, about history of chemistry. And, and as, as Kuhn, I think, pointed out as the example is you read something b before Lavoisier and, and all about phlogiston, it's almost incomprehensible to a modern chemist. Uh, you take a book from 1805 after that. And uh, it's almost like, we, you know, a, a modern chemist could say, yeah, I understand what they're doing and, and so on and so forth. Uh, I mean, it's two worlds. And I think that that uh, you're, you're absolutely right, that I think some, you know, things like uh, chemistry are in the 19th century are, are much more comprehensible compared to genetics and heredity and cell structure. And, you know, they don't, we don't share a paradigm with them. And we try to impose our paradigm on the, on them and it sort of works uh, whereas if you try to impose our paradigm on phlogiston it just doesn't work at all another question i had about translation a very quick question specifically for sophie and for ralph you know whose first language is german kirsten being slightly different um ralph for example you translated copious amounts of Misha into your existing papers, but yet there was never a complete translation. To be honest with you, two, two problems uh, prevented me from translating the whole thing. I was thinking about it, as you know, we discussed this in the past, and I was thinking about doing a translation, but then never did, mainly because I was um, just awed by the amount of work it would take. So kudos to you for having done it. I'm very grateful that someone has. I'm very sorry that I didn't or didn't even participate in your translation, but all the more grateful that you did do it. But it is a phenomenal amount of work to translate 20 pages of, of scientific German from the mid-19th century. And the other reason is, as we discussed um, before, it is oftentimes very difficult to translate because the terminology then was not only very different, but also to some extent ill-defined. Sometimes I wasn't entirely sure what a certain word meant in Misha's context, and I had to, as best as I could as a non-historian of science, try to find out. Um, Any specific example? I couldn't think of one on the top of my head, but um, at the time, I, I very vividly remember when in 2003, 4, 5, when I did my first paper, I struggled with reading the paper, even being a native speaker of German and having read a sizable amount of German language literature on, on molecular biology, genetics, and so on, chemistry. I was still significantly struggling with what Misha was actually saying because he used a vocabulary very different from the one we use today when we talk about chemistry, biochemistry, and biology. Um, so that was the second problem, not just the sheer amount of uh, text that, need to be, that needs to be translated, but oftentimes not being entirely sure what he really was saying. Yeah, I, I think I even have an example at the top of my head uh, of what uh, Ralph was mentioning. For example, the term albumin which was something super broad, sometimes even used coextensively with proteins at his time, which is now something very concrete, a very concrete compound, right? So these are the things that are super challenging. And I mean, also for me, so I did translate the remarkable bits for my collaborators who were German speakers, and I had to translate some parts into a more polished variant of the things I did for my collaborators when we finally published our paper. And this was just enough of work, right? It, I mean, it's it's so painfully work intensive. And even though like translations are beautiful and I did a lot of translating in school with Latin and ancient Greek, but I found I did my fair share of that and like no further. And I'm also super glad that you guys took on that job and did it so well and beautifully. Thank you. Um, yeah, thank you, Sophie. Thank you. One particular word change that I like to talk about is simply the use of the word genetic, genetische uh, in German. So which translates directly as genetic, 
but Kirsten or Ralph, would any of you like to comment on that particular word? Because it seemed to me that he was not using it in the sense of something hereditary, which is the most common use of the word genetic now, but rather a different meaning, almost like generative, that is giving rise to or being influenced by origins as opposed to being passed down from generation to generation. Uh, and did it, was anybody else struck by that particular translation? I don't know what Ralph would think here, but I wondered, yeah, like you say, whether it has connotations of almost like a developmental process. Although, I don't know, he might then have used the word enviclum. I don't know. But yeah, I think you're right. It's, there's no way does he mean genetic in the sense we understand it today. Generative, I, as you say, is much, I suspect, is much closer. Um, I, say, I, don't know, I don't know what Ralph would, um, would say on that. Well, it, it is indeed a prime example of where he uses a term that appears to uh, to mean something we know today, but means something very different in his time. And that, I think, is, is really one of the problems. Like Sophie was also pointing out the word albumin. You read these words, you think you know what they mean, but you actually don't. And that makes translating these texts so difficult, especially when you're not a historian like I am not. Uh, so... It's similar to, to many other languages, you, when you translate things, uh, you have to find uh, the right concept in that language to convey the meaning. And for that, you need to have a very profound knowledge of the cultural context, the scientific context, the personal context in which individuals used terms in a given way. And um, because it was a lot less standardized than it is today, I'm sure there weren't any books or even Wikipedia where you could look up the meaning of certain words and then know how to use or not use them. Um, it was pretty much up to the individual and the training they have received in their own small group as to how they use certain terms. Very unlike today. Uh, and like I said, that, that made it very difficult for me to even think about doing a translation as you did. Well, the word genetic being used in the sense of generative is outside of science is even used now. I mean, that's how I I picked up on it because somebody from comparative literature once used the word genetic and I pointed out, but that's not passed down from generation. And somebody else said, but that's not the only meaning of the word genetic. And I piped down. Um, and this happened, you know, less than 10 years ago. But genetic in the terms of hereditary has so overtaken all other uh, meanings of the word that it's difficult for us to recognize that they do exist, much less that they did exist. I'm going to shift the direction of this conversation entirely once more. I'd like to ask each one of you, when did you first learn about Misher? And when did you first read this paper? I know that the two things are very different for me, for example. I learned about Misher probably in high school, definitely by first year university, but it wasn't until two or three years ago, and that's many decades later, we won't say exactly how many, that I actually read the paper uh, when I collaborated with Kirsten to her translating it. So I would like to hear from everybody, and for this one, I thought it would be interesting to go chronologically, so beginning with the senior most person, Bill. When did you first encounter Misha's story and when did you first get a chance to read parts of or the whole paper? Yes, well, I, I went to college and was planning to be a physician and uh, so took the requisite uh, chemistry and biology classes, but I really was in love with mathematics, which was my major. And it wasn't until I took my first biochemistry course uh, as a graduate student and then as a medical student that I had run into even anything about the chemistry of macromolecules. Would you mind telling us when that was? This, <laughs> this was in the, the, the late 1950s and uh, early 1960s. And I mean, I heard Misher's name mentioned uh, in a, the first molecular biology course taught at the University of Wisconsin by uh, uh, Gobind Karana and a few others, uh, another Nobel Prize winner to be mentioned. And um, Misher was mentioned, uh, as all scientists do in lectures, as sort of the requisite historical start that always are presented with the idea that, well, we have to talk about this because after all, uh, you know, we're not so, have so much hubris that we're claiming we're the first. On the other hand, uh, these are the old guys and, and you don't have to really bother to read them because we're going to tell you the truth now. And um, so uh, I heard the name. I associated it with, you know, something in the middle of the 19th century. Uh, and um, 
but clearly uh, it was not relevant in, in any other way to what we were going to do. And uh, also, I think I was the last generation of science students who uh, were required to show some ability to read foreign languages uh, as part of their graduate education. Um, I passed the requisite uh, German reading exam, mainly because I believe my fellow graduate student taking it was a Catholic nun, and she had the whole convent praying for us the night of the exam. But um, my ability to read German well was, was non-existent, and therefore, except under duress, uh, I would not have read the paper. Um, and it was only until your translation came out that I actually did read it. So uh, having mentioned it to my students in the same way it was mentioned to me as sort of a landmark of the past, sort of like pointing to Stonehenge and saying, yes, uh, isn't that wonderful? And then moving on to uh, atomic clocks. And uh, so I, I must say that I am probably typical of a scientist of my generation in this regard. Thank you. Kirsten, you'd go next. Okay, that, that's interesting there that Bill says he was typical of scientists of his generation because I think I was very typical of scientists of my generation. The answer to the question, when did I first encounter Misha, the answer is shamefully, embarrassingly late in my career. Because as you said, Neeraja, during the introduction, I did an undergrad in biochemistry, PhD in molecular biology, several years as a research fellow in molecular biology, then I had the epiphany that I actually wasn't very good at molecular biology. So I hung up my white coat, put down the Gilson, uh, swapped the lab for the library uh, to do a part-time master's in history and philosophy of science in the hope that I might actually one day end up writing about it. Thanks to the support of the, the staff in history and philosophy of science at Leeds, I did, particularly Greg Raddick, who pointed me in the direction of unsung DNA pioneer William Astbury. And it was while I was researching a dissertation on William Asprey that eventually turned into a book, Man in Monkey Nut Coat, that is when I first encountered Misha. Which would be about when? Right, so we're talking about 20, 2011, 2012. Uh, to give you some context, I am already into my 40s at that point, right? So just, just stop and pause on that, right? I've gone through an undergrad biochem degree. I've gone through a PhD and fellowships in molecular biology and I've never encountered Misha. I actually first encountered him, it was in a book, um, Jack Cohen and Frank Portugal's book, Century of DNA, History on the Discovery and Structure of Function of the Genetic Substance, when I was researching the book for Asprey. But I didn't actually read the paper then. I didn't read the paper until you invited me to get involved with the translation. So it's been a long and winding road to Misha. Okay. So that's a huge jump. I learned about it, like I said, in high school. So in the early to mid-80s, but all I learned about was his name. But let's move on to Ralph then, who may have a similar experience, I think, as Kirsten to some extent. Very similar indeed, and not despite the fact that I was even educated in Germany where the discovery happened, at least to some degree. Um, I must have encountered, I presume, Misha also during my undergrad studies of biology and later my master's studies in biochemistry. But I don't recall, to be honest, encountering him. It was likely also a one line in a book or one short slide in a presentation and lecture by a lecturer. But I have no memory of this happening whatsoever. The first time I consciously encountered Misher was when I was a postdoctoral researcher in Tübingen, uh, so the city where he did discover DNA. And uh, it was the year 2003, and as many of you will remember, this was exactly 50 years after Watson and Crick famously discovered the structure of DNA, the now almost iconic double helix, which is, you know, which everyone in society pretty much knows these days. And this 50th anniversary was celebrated the world over with many articles in scientific, popular scientific, but also just general um, magazines and journals and so on. And at the time, I was aware that Misha had lived and worked in Tübingen and that it was there that he had discovered DNA. And I was a little bit frustrated, to be honest, that even I, as a biologist and biochemist working in the city where it happened, knew virtually nothing about this discovery. So I went straight to the library of the Max Planck Institute I was working in at the time, grabbed a volume of Hiess's biography of Misha. So his was Misha's uncle, as I said earlier. 
uh, and a collection of his papers, and I started reading, and I found it absolutely fascinating what I read. And after I had read it, I was actually amazed and to some extent also frustrated by the fact that Misha had, for his time, discovered an awful lot about DNA, not just first identified the molecule, but also learned and understood a lot about its chemical properties, and even quite presciently speculated on its functions in the cell and in processes such as heredity and uh, fertilization, although ultimately wrongly. So he had discovered a ton of things which were amazing to me. And I was really astonished that so few people, including myself, knew about Misha. And I decided to change that. So initially, I wrote an article for the local German newspaper in Tübingen to let at least the people in Tübingen know what happened um, long before Watson and Crick's discovery in their city. This was then coincidentally seen by the editor of the Max Planck White Journal, journal um, of the Max Planck Society. And he asked me to write a similar piece for Max Planck Research, their journal, which I did. And this coincidentally was seen by the editor of Dialoventral Biology, the journal where I published my first sort of scientific article. And he asked me to contribute an article for his journal and so on. So the whole thing which started out as personal curiosity snowballed into something much bigger, why I was then increasingly asked to write articles on the thing, because there was an interest in the story, and there was no one there to tell it. And so by really chance, I happened to become the person, like you mentioned, Niraja, who um, started to write all sorts of articles without any training in the history of science and without ever having had the intention to become a Misha scholar, which I don't still feel I am, because I'm by no stretch of the imagination a trained historian, and I shouldn't really be meddling in areas which I really don't understand, to be honest. Well, but you did write most about it. Thank you. And Sophie? <laughs> yeah, so I think my experience is similar to Ralph's because I think I never heard about Misha before I read the paper. And if I did in some part of my undergrad training in biology, so I started studying in 2011, I probably forgot about it because it wasn't relevant for the exam. And I guess I was also one of these terrible biochemistry students who didn't really care about the history or who weren't taught to care about the history. Now, I encountered the paper during my PhD, which was in 2017, when I was a guest researcher at Tel Aviv University. And one of my mentors there, Ehud Lam, approached me because he knew I spoke German. And he had read Ralph's papers on Misha and was particularly interested in the fact that Misha had also isolated uh, a compound nuclein associates with. So he asked me to read through Misha's works and letters to find out whether there's something interesting going on. And so that's how I started reading up on Misha. And the point I learned about Misha was also the point I read the paper. So for me, there's like almost like zero time between these two points. And yeah, that's that's how the whole thing started, and we started collaborating on Misha. That's great. So each quite a wide variety of experiences, some simultaneous, some long gaps between reading and learning about the paper. Um, it's really good to know. I'd like to bring our discussion to a close with two final questions. Uh, what does this paper have to offer to readers today? Uh, are there particular people or professions for whom you think it might be important to read this paper today other than historians or scientists specifically who should know about the history of their science? Why should a wider audience care about this paper? We did get into this earlier, I know to some extent, but would you like to return? Because I think it's good way to also end our discussion of this particular paper. Biochemistry students are in the lab pouring and stirring every day, and and once in a while you find one, maybe one out of ten, who wonders what am I doing, and uh, and and I don't want to get too um, out on a limb, but uh, you know the notion of standing on the shoulders of those who came before us uh, sometimes is is uh, of interest to students, and uh, they they wonder you know is this a, a meaningful uh, enterprise when they see that uh, you know the paper they published two years ago no one wants to cite anymore because it's obsolete and um, so I think having uh, accessible papers of 
people who they probably thought were obsolete to read again uh, gives them a certain perspective on their careers. Otherwise, science is a very depressing field. I mean, you look and and one one day you're putting the brick on the top of the wall, and you know five years later there's your brick down near the bottom of the wall, and uh, nobody wants to know that that's important. Uh, but it it is was part of the wall. But I must say that I find once in a while a, a student who wants to step back and uh, and and take a take a look at the. Uh, the field that they've gone into, and uh, as a human endeavor, not as a bunch of uh, pouring and stirring and another hundred and thousand nucleotides done today, and uh, you know that's that's pretty pretty depressing. Uh, and I think that these kind of um, historical bird's eye view uh, does make it a little more feeling like you're part of a grand enterprise. Particularly for modern scientists, possibly interesting in Misha's paper uh, is that reading it may make them a little bit more humble about what they do nowadays. Uh, science today is done very differently from the day when Misha was doing his experiments. He had very few tools at his disposal, had to be very creative about how to do his experiments. Nowadays, um, as Bill alluded to a little bit as well, it's basically just throwing big and expensive machines at uh, large-scale problems and trying to extract as much data as you possibly can in as short a period as possible, and then bioinformatically analyzing it. Um, and the biology sometimes gets a little bit lost. Misha um, started out with a very big biological aim, uh, very hard to get bigger than that. He wanted to understand the chemical basis of life, and he thought long and hard about how he could do it, and then devised clever protocols as to how he could get to the bottom of this. And this, to me, encapsulates a little bit what it actually is to be a scientist, you know, ask big questions and then think long and hard about how you can answer them with the tools at your disposal. The tools in his time were few and very primitive ones, but he still managed to discover quite a bit about what makes the chemical basis of life. So learning from this for modern day scientists may still be interesting in today's world. Okay. And Kirsten? Yeah, I mean, it, following on the uh, from, nicely from from what you've said there um so you know like bill was talking about how science can actually be quite a depressing pursuit sometimes because uh two years down the line and nobody's remembering your your paper of two years ago if misha did walk in to the eagle pub in the center of cambridge would he be even more mightily hacked off at the sight of a plaque that hangs in one cozy corner of that pub and on that plaque, it reads, The Discovery of DNA. On this spot, on the 28th of February, 1953, Francis Crick and James Watson made the first public announcement of the discovery of DNA. Well, I was down in Cambridge a few years ago doing some research, and after a hard day's graft in the archives, um, I went into the pub and ordered a pint of their, their specially brewed beer, which is called DNA. And I sat there in a the corner sipping it, uh, and I was sitting across from the plaque, and I, I could actually hardly see the plaque because it's surrounded by this, these hordes of tourists who have all made the pilgrimage to see it, and they're all snapping photos on their phones. And, um, and I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, should I tell them that it's wrong for two reasons? The first reason is that this whole event of Francis Crick and James Watson bursting into the Eagle pub and telling everyone within earshot they found the secret of life is pretty much apocryphal. The other point on which it's wrong is simply that, you know, I don't need to tell you all Watson and Crick didn't discover DNA. They discovered its structure. And I was sitting there sipping this pint of DNA beer thinking, should I tell those folks over there that it was actually Misha who discovered it? Well, thankfully, good sense prevailed, and I didn't, because uh, after all, you know, nobody likes a know-it-all, do they? Um, but it did leave me wondering, how would Misha have felt? I mean, we've already established earlier, talking to Ralph, you know, he went to his deathbed feeling uh, an intense sense of a life unfulfilled, things not done. I mean, how then would he have felt to be able to know that 100 years down the line, there's a plaque there basically giving the credit for the stuff he discovered to somebody else? Um, I think I've got the answer to that question now with the excerpt from the letter that I read earlier in which Misha says, unfortunately, few physicists and chemists are so inclined to sacrifice themselves for the accomplishment of these tasks. That gives me my answer, because nearly 100 years after writing those words, 
I think Misha could have relaxed because physicists were now most definitely interested in the nucleon that he discovered in that pus washed off the bandages. The physicist William Asprey and his research assistant Florence Bell had woven a path from their X-ray studies of wool to showing that these same methods could be used to reveal the regular ordered structure of DNA. Inspired by that work, physicist Morris Wilkins, who had worked on the Manhattan Project and then horrified at what had happened at uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, had turned his attention to biology and the study of DNA. And then, of course, Francis Crick was a physicist by training, and he had now similarly turned his attention to the problem of genetics. And there, I think, is the answer. There's the punchline to the question Friedrich Misha walks into a bar, sees this plaque, how does he respond? Would it have added to his sense of things undone? No, I don't think it would. Quite the opposite. I think to see that physicists such as Asprey, Wilkins and Crick were indeed at last flocking to study his nuclein would have left him absolutely delighted. Yeah, it was interesting what you just said about the plaque at the Eagle Pub in Cambridge, Kirsten. Um, actually, in the tradition of tubing and understating its discoveries, I think it's interesting to note that there is actually a plaque uh, right next to the entrance to the former lab Misha used to discover DNA, where it says, here, Friedrich Misha in 1869 discovered nuclein. Oh. No mention of DNA. And if you're not really a historian of science, likely you will not even know that this is where DNA was discovered because at the time it had a different name. So also uh, tubing in today is still very modest about the fact that um, DNA was discovered there. They need to get that plaque updated. I think they now have. Thank you, Ralph. And thank you also, Bill, Sophie and Kirsten for joining me today. This concludes our first episode of the DNA Papers podcast series. We hope you enjoyed yourselves and will tune back in for episode two in a few weeks.